Okay. <laughs> Yikes. Okay, um, welcome back everybody to Am I Right Ladies? We're super excited because we have our very first guest. Her name is Dr. Say it with some respect, please and thank you, Kirsten Westmoreland. Hello! <laughs> Cue the background noise or the background crowd or whatever. <laughs> Sorry, I'm like really nervous. I'm blushing already. <laughs> um. Okay, so I think we should do X of the week. Okay, let's start sure. with the X. Okay, so yesterday I went out to a bar, had a couple of drinks with my man, right? And there was this table that was sitting next to me, and the person at the table was like staring at us when we got our drinks. I was I like, wanted to take a picture of our drinks because they were like really cute, and. I could just feel this lady staring like she was breaking her neck to look at me and me and my boyfriend just kind of paused and looked at each other like why is she look like we kind of gave each other that eye and like I don't really know if that's an ick but it's more of a complaint and it just really bothered me and I kind of was just like to my boyfriend like I didn't know if she was still listening or not but I told him I was like you know it'd be nice if sometimes people mind their business yeah I wish that she might would have heard that but yeah that's my ick just like no okay i'm nosy so i can't really say much but don't break your neck to like stare like at aunties. somebody yeah <laughs> don't break your neck to stare at somebody that's so annoying that is kind of gross you gotta be like sly about it yeah, yeah. no 100 percent. so we have this friend and he mm-hmm. is very much a swifty we oh, same <laughs> eras to her i know you went so good changed your life, life. changing wow. okay cried really yeah are you kidding <laughs> i mean i will cry at beyonce i can't really judge we'll talk we'll debrief this later okay but yes <laughs> okay and him and his sister are super close and they bought tickets for seattle and then they got tickets for the very last concert um of her tour and this very last concert was vip tickets and seattle concert were regular tickets so they decided as a group like hey we're just gonna sell our tickets here in seattle and just ball out for our tickets in wherever her last concert is and mm-hmm. i'm not a swifty but i apparently she sings like a special song on her very last concert she does like two surprise songs every concert and they change every night okay well I, I he thought it was gonna be a certain song. I don't know. Sure. Either okay. way, it's VIP tickets. This friend sold the VIP tickets for nine hundred dollars a pot versus the Seattle tickets that were the regular tickets. So they lost out on these VIP tickets for nine hundred dollars. I'm just so curious how he accidentally sold the wrong tickets it wasn't our friend that sold the wrong tickets it was their friend that sold the wrong tickets oh, okay. so like still how i feel like if i were selling my taylor swift tickets which i would never do um, <laughs> i would be triple quadruple whatever comes after that checking to make sure i wasn't selling the wrong tickets oh and it gets worse okay so he was like you know what i'm really gonna try and buy back these tickets six of them oh my gosh they originally purchased them for 250 a pop (gasps) oh 
Now I'm really jealous. <laughs> he tried rebuying them. Guess the price. Oh, had to have been like two grand each. At- were they floor? Close. Were they floor? We're not even close. I I don't know what they are. I have oh, no really? idea what they are. Oh gosh, they were eighty eight thousand dollars <gasps> to repurchase what? six VIP VIP tickets. That's not real. $88,000? We saw the screenshot because he was like trying to buy it with his Apple Pay and then he saw the price and was like, absolutely not. No. Oh my gosh. So I'm not a Swifty. Neither am I. But like, I mean, I'm like a diehard Swifty, right? Yeah, but yeah, yeah. I don't personally have $88,000 well, <laughs> for anything. So, <laughs> well, when I heard this, I went straight to her because we're going to Beyonce together. Mm-hmm. She said, I would never speak to you ever again. And I don't blame her. Oh. Like, if we had VIP tickets and I sold the wrong ones, I would not even want to go with you at that point. I don't know that I would never speak to the person again, but I would be really upset. Like, that one. Because I think if if you can accept that it was, like, an honest mistake and just be like, that was really dumb of you. That's a really I feel healthy like, way of going about it. I feel like I'd it. be able to move forward, but I think I'd be mad for a while. Like, I think I'd it need would to, take time. to simmer a bit. I think I'd feel better knowing that I still get to go to the concert. It's just not the other, like, fun VIP concert. That we could have gone to way of looking at that. That is very mature because you. you still could have go. <laughs> like it's not like it's because you were only gonna go to one concert and you still get to go to one concert. It's just not the concert in the other location. And if the part of him being so excited about this final concert was that he thinks there's gonna be a specific surprise song, which yeah. is not guaranteed. We Taylor Swift will do whatever she wants, you know. I mean, it's Taylor Swift, and yeah. also like that's just going to be the last concert for the America Eras tour. She hasn't released international dates yet, so oh, there's like a ton more to come. So I think I'd be able to move forward, but I would be very upset and would find it very hard not to like give my friend a hard time and make them feel mm. bad because I'm sure the friend feels horrible. There's yeah, no way the friend yeah. like did that maliciously or yeah. and it's. Mm-hmm they're losing out too or maybe not losing out but like yeah, it's, it's hurt it's them too them. so i think i think i can move on from it but i think my main what ick, a bad mistake well i Oof. think my main ick out of this whole thing is he explained to me that like her songs really changed his life and like i know a lot of girls really appreciate her and her songs and like how it's helped them through things yeah i think my main ick is that scalpers are doing that to the to the her oh audience. yeah I think that's like my main ick and that really breaks my heart for them that breaks my heart too I think that makes me more mad than any of the rest of it just yeah. that the scalpers for this tour have been charging such ex- like crazy amounts of money for these tickets crazy and the fact that Ticketmaster upped the prices of tickets based on yeah. how many people were waiting in their queue um and yeah I find that way more frustrating than you know, a friend making a, yeah, a mistake, a mistake. Yeah. Yeah. Or did you see the guy? There was a guy early on in Taylor Swift's tour where um, there was like this picture of a man circulating and it's some like middle-aged man, adult, wearing a Kanye made you famous t-shirt while on the floor of the Taylor Swift concert, like one of her opening 
concerts. Oh my my jaw is on the floor right now. Isn't that offensive? That's yeah, horrible. Because no matter where you stand on the Kanye Taylor discourse, that was disrespectful. That's disrespectful. And the fact that like floor tickets for her shows were so many hundreds, if not thousands of dollars. Yeah. So to go and then do something that so many people that are there is going to find deeply disrespectful. Yeah. Especially after all of the like anti-Semitic stuff that has come out from Kanye in the last few months. Rude. That is very That was an ick. (laughs) That is so pathetic. You spend that much money just to like be a hater. Like Yeah. To troll people upset like why? To troll a bunch of like teenage girls when you're a grown man. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. My heart is really broken. Damn. This really went down. (laughs) Sorry, that was a downer. Well, well, my ick this week, so I don't have an ick about, like, necessarily individual people, but more just something that um, has been making my life as a professor kind of tricky. So I'm a lecturer at Rice University Mm -hmm. um, at the moment, so I teach university classes in psychology. And I don't know, are you all familiar with ChatGPT and other AI softwares? Okay. So... I think that things like ChatGVT could be very helpful tools if you need help, like getting inspiration for how to start something or um, how to compose an email. Mm -hmm. Or I saw a woman on Twitter the other day say that she had used it to reformat her references from MLA to APA format. So I think there are some good uses for it. Yeah. However, when I'm grading student essays Mm -hmm. and I see really weird writing that's maybe formatted incorrectly and Mm. i pop it into an ai checker and it comes back as 99 percent likely to have been written by a computer that bugs me (laughs) and i think that like it's a natural thing for a student to try and do that i think at some point someone's gonna try and do that whatever but uh, sometimes it's just so blatantly obvious and i think that it's difficult that these ai softwares have been created and there hasn't really been due process to like check to make sure that they're not being Mm. used in unethical ways yeah and in higher education we're just sort of starting to deal with them yeah we don't have good systems in place to make sure that they're not being used for wrong and generally i have the assumption that all of my students have the best intention yeah and aren't you know cheating or being being unethical um and so it's a real bummer when i do catch something Mm -hmm. because no one ever wants to like give somebody a poor grade or send them to an honor board or anything like that but i've had especially in the last week or two i've had like a lot of cases where i've found Uh. cases and i've talked to other instructors of mine both at my university and other universities who have had a lot of instances of ai generated assignments being handed in um and they're pretty obvious you can tell most of the time i think when you read hundreds of papers every couple weeks mm-hmm. you kind of know what a student paper looks like and what an ai paper looks like <laughs> um but i really wish i don't know what the solution is so i think that's why it's bugging me right now i don't know if we need to integrate ai checkers into online submission systems mm-hmm. or i don't i don't really know the solution but that's been bothering me this that's week rough. back in my day Back in my day, we had turnitin.com that checked <laughs> if you had too many quotes and was too similar to, like, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, yeah. now it's not. Well, we still have turnitin.com, but, like, turnitin.com's not going to figure out if an AI, AI wrote your assignment. Yeah. yeah. 
So that's my. Uh, I don't know if that's really an ick, but it's no, it's been no, on no, my that's... it's been on my brain a lot in the last few weeks. We've had lots of conversations about it in work, and there's of course a lot of people in academia that love AI generation and like mm. love that we're now using this, and think that it can improve a lot of what we put out. But I think as an instructor, I walk this very fine line where I don't know if I'm pro or against. I see the benefit, but also. Yeah, makes your life harder. It makes my life harder. It means that like now my final exams are like back to in person. So Oof. they have an exam next week um, where like they have to come sit in a class with a proctor and on pen and paper, like write out their <laughs> oh, essay responses my God. because I can't just give it to them in a virtual format because I've caught too much cheating in the last. So that's a bummer. I am. That's definitely an ick of the week. It's making your life harder. (laughs) Well, and I think it's making their lives harder ultimately because what it means is that students are now going to have more in-person exams in the classroom where they have to write out essays with pen and paper, which I was watching a girl take her exam the other day. And at one point she did that classic thing where like you put your pen down and just like shake your hand (gasps) out. And I, I was like, oh yeah, I remember that. Because back in my day, we just didn't have typed essay. Like you just didn't do that. But oh I feel like we're gosh. we're going back in time a little bit with how we're doing our essays now. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's crazy. Ooh. Okay. Well, we're, let's go ahead and switch gears here a little bit. Do you want to kind of give your background real quick so our listeners know, like, your credentials? Um, Yeah, cool. So thanks for having me. My name is Kirsten Westmoreland. Mm-hmm. I have a PhD in experimental psychology that I got um, a few years ago from the University of Bristol over in England. Um, and then for the last couple of years, I've been working in Texas at a private university as a lecturer um, and postdoctoral research fellow. Mm-hmm. So my PhD looked at emotion perception research and social context. So I looked at how we integrate information from social scenes to form judgments of other people. So at the root, I'm an, an impression formation and person perception psychologist. And then for my postdoctoral research, I've moved more into um, leadership research. And so I've done a lot of work with coachability and leader identity and aspirational self-concept, especially our clarity around the type of leader that we want to be and how that impacts things like our goal progress and our identity. Um, I also look at things like the big five and I look at emotional intelligence. But along with that, I've been a lecturer teaching personality psychology and developmental psychology for the last year. And through personality psychology, we talk a lot about um, the basis of personality from a biological uh, lens, as well as many, many other lenses Mm -hmm. that I'm not going to get into because this would become a 15-week podcast of me teaching you personality psychology. That's Um, But I'm here today to talk about (laughs) lobotomies and sort of the history behind psychosurgeries, Mm -hmm. uh, which I'm really excited about. I will clarify that, you know, I'm not a psychosurgeon. I'm not a neurosurgeon. I'm not a neuroscience person. So, you know, I know a decent amount about some of this because of what we talk about in personality psych, but Mm -hmm. um, there's definitely much more qualified psychologists out there. And so if you like what you hear in this episode, I would highly encourage you to seek out other psychologists that specialize in this area and would be able to give you a lot more information. I know that there's tons of very qualified people that have way more extensive podcasts on this subject. So oh yeah, there's lots out there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes. We're just trying to like cover our basis, you know, <laughs> on our end and learn the most 
we can from the best resource we have in person. <laughs> we have to like clarify like in every podcast that we are not like professionals in anything. <laughs> in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. But we have a professional here now. So she clarified that. Yeah. For us. I am yeah. a professional psychologist. I don't know that I'm a professional, you know, neuroscientist, but well, we we're good. We're, we're good. good. We're, we're good. good. We're good. We have a lecturer here okay i would kind of love to know before we get oh talking about it mm -hmm. what you guys already know about the brain and lobotomies and how this all came to be do you want to go first and it's okay <laughs> it's okay if you know nothing about it i mean i think a lot of people don't so you know i'm just curious what you know level we're at here i mean i know that it's involving like severing the prefrontal cortex um you know to change the person's personality and their behavior and whatnot is what their goal mm -hmm. is so yeah great yeah yeah um i think the most fascinating thing that i learned personally that stuck with me they had different definitions for schizophrenia than what is the actual definition like and it could be literally like you have anxiety or depression or whatever that may be and they used that to supposedly like fix that issue that people were experiencing so that's kind of like the it, it you know instead of like medication or like therapy they were doing you know an ice pick to the brain <laughs> yeah i mean part of that is that medications didn't exist yet right? right and we'll get into that um but yeah what you're pointing out is something um that's been it's like it's still an issue today and that we have mm -hmm. a lot of heterogeneity of symptoms across various disorders mm -hmm. and when lobotomies were very first introduced in the 1940s we really didn't have good diagnostic principles mm -hmm. for all of these different disorders got it and so a lot of people were labeled as having something like schizophrenia who today wouldn't qualify under the current diagnostic criteria right. so right now we use the diagnostic and statistical manual number five so the dsm-5 1952 okay yeah. yeah yeah so in the 1940s when um lobotomies were first started to use we didn't have a dsm yet and so right. there wasn't really this repository of mental illnesses and their diagnostic criteria and mm -hmm. so with nothing to really base our judgments off of mm -hmm. people who were interested in mental health care of other people didn't they didn't really know what they were doing they were kind yeah. of going in blind when um, there were no there there were no like ethics around it i no not really there weren't there weren't great ethics um we didn't really have a diagnostic manual we didn't have brain scanning back then so we didn't even know mm. how different regions of the brain were connected and how neural impulses through the brain people didn't really know um how the brain really functioned mm -hmm. we had some loose guesses based on previous cases that had happened i know okay. like phineas gage is a really popular one that okay. comes up in a lot of intro psych classes um but beyond that we, we really didn't know a lot um I would love to talk a little bit more about what lobotomies were and where it started. Yes. But have either of you seen a lobotomy before? No. No. Okay. Can we cut and I want to show you a yes. video real quick before we keep going? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we just watched. Okay. Yeah. We just watched a video about lobotomy. And it showed it. 
I made and them do what I sick. do to my students. I had them watch a video that talks a bit about the history of lobotomies and it includes footage of lobotomies being performed. Um, so how do you, how do you feel? I feel, I feel like I'm interviewing sick. you. No, no, no. I feel a little <laughs> sick. Um, how about you? Um, I don't get sick pretty easy, but yeah, it looked like it hurt. It looked like pretty rough. They're just kind of playing around in there. Well, keep in mind, they would have been unconscious because they had electroshock therapy right before. Right. So that would have hurt too. Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> yep. Would have for sure. I'm sorry. I'm just like in a little bit of shock right now. And I don't mean that in a funny way either. Yeah. I feel like I sometimes forget that other people haven't watched lobotomy videos a hundred times, but I think as a, as an instructor, but also as someone that has done a degree in psychology, I feel like it's almost a rite of passage to watch a lobotomy video at some point. Great. So I've, I mean, the last time I taught personality in person, I had my students watch students watch that same video and I almost had to hide behind the podium because their faces were so just jaws dropped all the way to the floor, baffled expressions. Not actually. I mean, I mean, it, it was, was funny. It was funny. Their expressions were funny. Their expressions the were funny. The content's not. not funny. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Sorry. I'm just like, I'm a little thrown <laughs> off right now. I can't, I can't even ask questions. So, I mean, so for people that didn't see a video, how would you describe it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it talks a little bit about the history of lobotomies. And I, I think what a lot of people think of is the transorbital, transorbital lobotomy, which is developed by Walter Freeman um, in 1940s. Okay. And that one is the more drastic form of lobotomy where they use an ice pick mm -hmm. and they sort of push your eyeball aside, mm -hmm. stick the ice pick like deep into your skull, and then they just sort of tap it with a mallet, wiggle it around. And what they're trying to do is sever the neural mm -hmm. connections between your thalamus and the rest of your prefrontal lobe or your frontal cortex. Initially, we did something called a prefrontal lobotomy, right. um, sometimes also called a prefrontal lacotomy. And this was a lot more drastic of a procedure in which they essentially would drill. You had ECT for both of these. So you'd have like an electroshock therapy, mm -hmm. which would render you unconscious. Um, so I don't, I mean, I don't know how effective this was right. at truly keeping people from feeling any of the pain associated with these mm -hmm. procedures. But in a prefrontal lobotomy, they would drill um, burr holes sort of into the side of your head, mm -hmm. um, wherein they would insert this tool that looked, it was described in the video as looking a little bit like a butter knife, mm -hmm. which I think is fair based on what was mm. in the video. Yeah. yeah. Um, and essentially from there, they then try and cut these connections between the thalamus and the rest of the brain. Unfortunately, eh, unfortunately, it's a weird, it's all unfortunate, right? Yeah. But unfortunately with this, this was a procedure that was pretty intensive. It took a lot of time. You needed multiple people to do this. Um, and so Walter Freeman invented the transorbital lobotomy to be a much quicker procedure gotcha. that could be taken on the road, could be done more effectively across more and more people. Got it. And okay. ultimately he had altruistic motives so he right. wanted to help people um the whole purpose of any of these lobotomies in the first place was because mental hospitals and asylums of the 1930s were these terrible terrible places mm -hmm. where people who had come back from world war one mm -hmm. and had severe ptsd shell shock all of these horrible things schizophrenia being one 
um, had absolutely no treatment. There was no medication. We didn't really know how to work with these people using therapeutic approaches to help mm -hmm. them. And we needed something to help them um, calm down or, mm. I mean, ultimately I think the goal was to help shift their personality and help them cure mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. be cured. We now know that it, it goes deeper than that. And it's not just a matter of making someone outwardly calm um, yeah. because mental illness is so much inside of you, not so much how you act outwardly. Yeah. And so with the prefrontal lobotomies, they did see some improvement in about 30% of people in that they were calmer afterward and didn't have any obvious issue or medical problem. I'll let you, <laughs> yeah. you know, decide for yourself how much you believe that these people were truly better off. Right. Um, and then about 30% of people had no real change. So they didn't, they weren't improved by this procedure, but they also weren't left worse off um, from what anybody saw. So, you know, vision wasn't going away. Paralysis wasn't happening. Mental illness wasn't worse, but they also weren't better. I think I would like to be a part of that 30 Like if I were to be alive during that time frame, mm -hmm. and this was forced upon me because I also read that some people it was done to them without their permission, but that's like a whole nother thing. Mm -hmm. um, I think I'd rather be part of the 30% that nothing really changed. Yeah. Well, then 30% yeah. were worse off. So well, paralysis yeah. being a common mm -hmm. one remarkably few deaths during the procedure i want to say there was only one death during a procedure i think i heard that same mm -hmm. and then as soon as that happened i think lobotomies pretty much stopped i think Great. walter freeman was no longer allowed to do them especially since he wasn't really a he wasn't the surgeon right mm -hmm. like he didn't study surgery yeah. per se no um i think he worked with a partner um james watts who helped develop this surgery though walter right. freeman would perform them um but he wasn't a you know a surgeon by trade prior to developing this and then the initial lobotomy so a prefrontal lobotomy was developed by a portuguese doctor named antonio egos moniz which apologies for the poor pronunciation that i'm sure I made on that name and then um they went on for a long time so i want to say the the transorbital ice pick lobotomy mm -hmm. was developed in 1946 and it didn't mm -hmm. fall out of favor until the early 1960s and wow. so they had mm -hmm. been declining in popularity in the 50s and 60s mm -hmm. um as medications became more available um so as we started developing medications that could help people with things like anxiety and depression mm -hmm. we no longer needed to do such drastic procedures in the first place. Got it. Um, and then as soon as somebody died in an operation, they stopped doing lobotomies. At least that's my understanding. Um, and by then you also had like the DSM at that point too. Yeah, we had a DSM at that point because that came out in the 50s. And I think people had started thinking about ethics more seriously. Good. So. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? But <laughs> it, it has... <laughs> psychology um despite being a very old field sometimes mm -hmm. feels very new in that a lot of things like our ethics and our dsm haven't been around for that, that drastically long. long and we're still learning new things all the time i mean we don't really know all that much about the brain in comparison to the rest of the body let's for sure let's be real here <laughs> and i always in when i whenever i teach about lobotomies in my class we talk about the ethics of a lobotomy because ultimately the goal was to help people and we didn't have 
brain imaging scans of any type at the time. We didn't have medication and we didn't have very solid therapeutic practices just yet. Mm-hmm. And so with this in mind, I always ask my students whether they think lobotomies were ethical for the time. And they don't like that question because mm-hmm. now, like from you yeah. know a 2023 right. lens, yeah. when we think about it, you would never in a million years opt never. to lobotomize a person. Yeah. That feels very unethical. Um, but in 1950, that was who knows what I mean, decision I you guess, would have made. Yeah. I mean, I guess if you think it from that perspective, like they either had, you know, a lobotomy or to like rot an institution. So it's like if you're that desperate for some type of solution, I guess like I could see it from that lens. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It feels like the worst thing to admit. Yeah, but it's true. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. yeah. I'm really shook. No. Still not over the video. <laughs> I'm not over the video because it's very not what I did to learn about this. So I could have like mm-hmm. a little bit more of a conversation. So I feel really dumb right now because it's just like I'm just so stopped by the fact that I watched it happen and that happened to real people you know what i'm saying thousands and and thousands of people yeah and that really breaks my heart especially i watched this video of this war veteran that he lives in the small town in the midwest and he's known as like the grouchy old man that sits at the diner by himself in this like little old town when in reality he fought in world war ii and then he had a lot of ptsd from seeing you know the horrors that were over there you know Mm -hmm. um and then he they ended up giving him a lobotomy like the um what is it called the not you uh the u.s veterans medicine i don't know the exact term for it but at one point they denied that they gave lobotomies to veterans to kind of quote unquote help them you know yeah Mm -hmm. and it just breaks my heart that now he's just known as this cranky old man when his family sent him to this institute for dealing with ptsd and now he's well and i find that so interesting too because the part of the brain that you're hitting when Mm -hmm. you do a lobotomy um plays this really strong role in our emotions Mm -hmm. so the frontal cortex is largely responsible for things like your pleasant and unpleasant emotions Mm -hmm. as well as your approach approach and withdrawal responses to other people um also things like your emotional stability your propensity to get angry um your inhibition of reactions to unpleasant stimuli all of these things Mm -hmm. and so if you poke around with an ice pick in this part of your brain that's responsible for all these very important functions that play a huge role in your personality you have to wonder if this man is now this grouchy man because of this lobotomy or is it because of the fact that he was lobotomized because i personally even if Mm -hmm. my brain was fully intact and fine Mm -hmm. the fact that i had been lobotomized Mm -hmm. and knowing that someone had done that to me i think would also make me pretty angry yeah yeah so i wonder if it's an effect on his brain from this surgery like a direct impact of lobotomy or this this more social environmental factor you just made me even more sad than i originally (laughs) was oh i'm sorry no it's fine because this is supposed to be a learning experience oh i was just gonna say another thing that kind of blows my mind with lobotomies and this goes into what you're i think about to talk about is that 
Um, there are lots of people who had lobotomies done in the 50s and 60s who are still alive today. Um, this was a procedure that affected thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Um, and while many of them were older and war veterans and are like unlikely to be, you know, here with us in 2023, many of them were alive. There's a very famous, well, in my world, a very famous case of a man named Howard Dully, who's actually a Washington native. I think he's from um, somewhere down in southwestern Washington. Mm -hmm. And he wrote a memoir um, because he was lobotomized when he was a child. So he was, I think he was 12 when he got his lobotomy. Um, and in his memoir, he talks a lot about how he doesn't understand why he had to have a lobotomy because he didn't think he was that bad of a kid. Mm. And he talks about, you know, maybe being a more difficult kid, maybe misbehaving a little bit, but not to the extent that you would want to lobotomize a child, especially now, you know, in 2023, as we think about parenting a lot more and how we parent has shifted drastically. Yeah. I can't imagine a parent <laughs> lobotomizing their child, but I think his step parent, um, was the one that maybe set this up with Walter Freeman to get a lobotomy from Walter yeah. Freeman. Um, and he's still alive. He's written this memoir yeah, and has come out of it, but he's, I mean, he was 12 in 1960 or 1950 something. So that puts him, I mean, my dad was born in 1961. So for reference, he would only be, you know, 10 years older than my dad, probably something like that. I yeah, don't know his yeah. exact birthday or anything, but I find that, that's quite jarring um yeah. especially because these lobotomies were were done all over the country um but i think you're going to talk about a, a famous lobotomy <laughs> <laughs> okay so i wanted to talk about rosemary and kennedy which everybody knows the kennedys actually this is the second time we're mentioning the kennedys <laughs> <laughs> um but rosemary kennedy um she was born in 1918, and she was the third child and eldest daughter of Joseph and Rose Kennedy, of course, the sister to John F. Kennedy, former president. They did say she grew up with some uh, learning difficulties, uh, some intellectual disabilities, some issues at birth. But she kind of, her issues were kind of hidden by her father because he didn't, he kind of just told everybody that she was developing just fine, even though she did have some struggles. Um, because, you know, they had this image to keep up. They were socialites, very wealthy family. Eventually, she was pulled out of school because of some of the difficulties she was having. She was having seizures as well. Um, and she was homeschooled by a tutor. And eventually, she was sent to some all-girls schools, a boarding school, um, which was the alternative was to be institutionalized. At 22, Rosemary was placed in a convent. Um, and had started to act out while she was there. And her sister Eunice um, said that she was becoming increasingly irritable and difficult. She was also reported, uh, the nuns at the convent reported that she was uh, caught sneaking out at night to go to bars and she would meet like strange men there and went home with them and they told her father. Okay. Isn't that crazy? Okay, but like when I was... 22 i was doing the same thing she must be mentally ill let's not talk about that right now <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah they told they told her father the nuns and the father's like oh no like this is gonna basically at the same time that this was happening um 
her father was grooming her two her two oldest brothers um for a career in politics so her behavior could create a bad reputation for them and for the whole family mm. um so they were trying to find something that would quote unquote help her right so that's when uh the following year they were persuaded that a lobotomy would help calm rosemary and prevent her sometimes violent mood swings uh joseph kennedy had authorized the lobotomy so it's kind of unclear exactly like because i was i couldn't really find to see exactly like how they approached her with this idea would it have been this sort of thing maybe you know is at this point in time when it comes to like women's health you kind of really had to have a male's approval or whatever the man said in your life that was your superior or whatever yeah i mean women couldn't even have their own bank account until 1974 so i don't know too much about rosemary kennedy's situation but it doesn't surprise me that she would be told by like a father for example that she would have to have this procedure and then just go along with it right walter freeman became really um kind of a showman when it came to his lobotomies so he would tour around and perform lobotomies in big amphitheaters full of people and so um it it became more of a performance for him a lot of times so Mm. he would like use his left hand even though he was right-handed or he would do two lobotomies at the same time going back and forth between the two patients um which is something you would never in a million years see a surgeon do today right could you imagine if you went in for like but any brain surgery if your surgeon was just flitting back and forth between operating rooms with you and another patient you would never do that um but walter freeman did because he was so impressed by this procedure that he'd helped develop and so um initially they were this thing that were was meant to help people who had these very severe you know schizophrenia or ptsd Mm. or these these really dire post-war mental disorders mm-hmm. um and then as it went on especially in the culture of the 50s it became something that was widely used to calm down yeah nervous stressed out housewives i think it was interesting because they actually gave her this procedure like in the early days of the lobotomy oh really yeah okay. so it was kind of like this new thing that you know they heard so much great things about and it seemed like a great solution for rosemary's issues you know um and the mother rose she claimed that she had no knowledge of the procedure until it had already happened and um nobody really thought to ask if rosemary had any thoughts about it of her own um but basically lobotomy they drilled two holes in her skull um which is like you know the early lobotomy. oh right so a prefrontal lobotomy right so they did the prefrontal lobotomy and um they inserted small metal spatulas um to sever the link again mm-hmm. through the prefrontal cortex um and she was awake and actively speaking with her doctors even reciting poems to her nurses uh, all the medical staff knew that the, the procedure was over when she stopped speaking to them uh, immediately after the procedure the kennedys realized that their daughter there was something off with her um so not only did the lobotomy fail to cure her challenges but it also left her extremely disabled she could no longer speak or walk properly and she was moved to an institution immediately and spent months uh, in physical therapy before she regained normal movement even then it was only like in one arm that she had the ability to move and her family did not visit her for 20 years 
they like just threw her away in the institution and it wasn't until after her dad suffered a massive stroke that her mom rose went to go see her daughter again in a rage because she didn't you know she couldn't you know really control herself she actually attacked her mother when she first met her during their reunion and because like, that's the only way that she knew how to express herself i think the only person that was really there for her was her sister eunice i think in the later days she like went to they went and reunited but yeah it's just like a super sad story she actually i think she lived up until like 2005 i believe 2003 2005 um so she did live quite a while um after her lobotomy but super super sad it breaks my heart that it also like the family just shut down and yeah. cut her out and that i think that's what makes me the most sad about this is like i mean yeah her physical aspect of like losing all of that and also the mental aspect of it but i think most of all losing a relationship with your family because they're embarrassed of you is the worst of all when it wasn't even your decision yeah well and especially because that was the the opposite point of a lobotomy the point of lobotomies was to help get people out of asylums Mm -hmm. it was because they saw people sitting in asylums wasting away and they didn't like that and so they wanted to bring a lobotomy in to fix that problem and so the fact that a lobotomy would be done and then the result is that this person who used to live you know a relatively normal life yeah Mm -hmm. she had her challenges she had challenges but she was functioning mm-hmm. um now is doomed to this sort of life in asylum that's completely counterproductive to the procedure which is a real shame this is a sad <laughs> this is really sad you guys last week i warned you <laughs> <laughs> well this week it's coming out i'll cut this out but this last episode was about hello kitty and it was really happy about culture and having a buddy and now it's i forgot how sad this <laughs> This is also like our season finale. So. Just so you all know. Oh, is it? Yeah. yeah. I'm so honored to be here. <laughs> no, you should. No, no, no. I feel, I also feel like this kind of not puts us on the map because we're very small, you know, but also I feel like we can be taken a little more seriously that we have a guest and yeah. a guest with good credentials. <laughs> this is going to be such, so bad for my ego, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think to like bring it to a more positive note. So I think that lobotomies are this sort of dark spot in our history of psychology, but they are what sort of kickstarted an interest in psychosurgery, which now the wider field of psychosurgery saves thousands of people's lives every year. It allows us to do so many things to help people who have mental ailments, whether those be more neurological or psychological Um, The brain is the foundation of all of our thoughts and behavior and emotion and feelings. Um, And so even though, you know, the start of psychosurgery wasn't great, what it's become is now very exciting. We no longer do things like lobotomies. We have ethics boards. (laughs) Things are getting better. (laughs) I feel like there are so many, like, dark things in, like, the history of psychology and the study of psychology that have, like, led to so much development and it's really sad but like i don't know yeah i mean i think that there's this phenomenon in psychology where we always focus on the negative rather than focusing on the positive i think there are lots of beautiful positive productive things in psychology there are definitely some dark marks in history and i think a part of this comes from people's fascination with the brain sometimes going in a not so positive direction Mm. um but at least with lobotomy and psychosurgery the field is still growing drastically today it's you know we haven't even had psychosurgery for 100 years yet and so it's still growing and it's getting better and better every year there 
even now when I was doing research for my class last semester when I taught this unit, there were, I think, two new forms of brain scan that hadn't been around when I took my psychology classes and learned this information. Um, and I don't know what, what the field of brain surgery is up to today. Maybe you'll find a brain surgeon friend for one of your next episodes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think it's headed in a really positive direction. And so I think it's nice to be able to look back on where we were and see how far we've grown and learn from our mistakes and yeah. never repeat history. <laughs> no, no, That's the last thing we need. I had questions um you answered all of them oh. in your thank you so much for telling me about rosemary i only knew like a little bit here and there but thank you for like talking about her i really appreciate it when did she die um like in t early 2000s okay yeah thank you so much for coming on our podcast i appreciate thanks for having me yeah, so thank you so much. Um, to wrap things up for this season, you guys, we're going to take a couple weeks off and do some research just to wrap things up for the season. We really appreciate you guys. And we have some exciting stuff coming. In the next few weeks. Yeah, so we we're going to take a little bit of a gap to prepare. To prepare. We have lots of things to be watching. Okay, bye! <laughs> That's a wrap. Did it? Yeah, we did it.